Well, that's what he'd like for you to think. You see, a part of the problem, and by the way, let's, let's sort of, I'll just sort of shoot from the hip because uh, wh- where does this problem come from? I mean, really, where does it come from? I mean, really. Now, you think it comes from you, don't you? You think it was caused by dad or mom or culture or environment or something that happened that <clears throat> made you feel rejected. Where did it come from? Where does all rejection come from? Huh? From Satan. From Satan. Now, what was his problem? Rejection. He has a self-acceptance problem. If you'd have pulled what he pulled, you would have too. You'd have had a mammoth one. And that's his problem. And folks, listen, we need to, we need to recognize the source. Now, who is helping him? The demons. They're not all in Africa, you know. They're talking to you all the time. The slightest accusation about your lack of worth comes from the devil. You need to recognize that. The one thing the devil is marketing, I suppose above any other, I know he markets fear, But everything centers around who I am. And you see, one of the reasons we're studying the covenant is when we find out who we are with God, we're going to stop messing around with all these false identities the devil and the crowds are putting on us. And we're going to stop letting the crowds determine how we act. You see, if anybody can make you react, they're in control of your life. If I can make you mad, I'm in control of your life. If I can make you jealous, I'm in control of your life. If I can make you do anything that otherwise you would not have done, I have stepped into a controlling factor. And so if the enemy can make you uh, feel that you are worthless, and I mean, you know, with some good documentation, uh, he can remind you of a half dozen things just like that, can't he? It'll have you in the pit, all right? Well, I want to share it. Something about my wife later on, but probably I, I just need to share about myself. Uh, I grew up in the country, way back in the country. And uh, first off, there is a mentality among among country people uh, of fear about the city and city people. You know that? How many of you from the country? Isn't that so? We sort of assume that folks in the city know more than we know. That's what the enemy tells us. Well, I thought that was true. I don't think they know near as much now. But anyway, I grew up in the country, way back in the country. I mean, my my little town in boom years had a population of 15. 25 miles to the doctor. We had a school system with 11 grades, 160 kids in 11 grades. Um, I skipped the third grade because we added the 12th grade. And uh, we didn't have a football team. Didn't have enough men to play football. We did have a basketball team. Had seven, came out for it. When three filed out, we finished with four. (laughs) Had... um, 33 in high school. Now, I'm telling you this because I I want to tell you that out of that, I came with a mammoth 
inferiority complex. Do you know what that is? Anybody ever bothered with that? Feelings of deficiency, fears of other people outdistancing you, fear of not succeeding, fear of relating to other people because it reminds you of how worthless you are in comparison to them. Do you know what I mean? Are you experiencing any of this? That didn't all die with my generation. Devil's still at it, isn't he? <clears throat> so, uh, our best year, our best year, I was star of the basketball team. Um, our best year, we, we, uh, well, I wasn't big, but I was, I was, I was fast. I wasn't tall, but I was fast. And uh, our best year, we won three and lost 27. That was our best year. <laughs> Another year or two, we didn't win any. And uh, well, the girls' team, that was good. They had insult to injury. They, beat, they played us and beat us. We had one girl about six foot three and her arms were another four feet long. And uh, nobody could guard her. And uh, so I, I finished high school with a... And I was valedictorian. Seven in the graduating class. Uh... My my brother was valedictorian. There were three in his. My other brother was valedictorian. There were two in his graduating class. My sister was uh, salutatorian. There were 14 in hers. But we were, you know, getting brighter as the days went on. But I went to college with a terrible intimidation complex, a terrible inferiority complex, a terrible self-image. I couldn't stare you in the face when I was talking to you. I was so backward and bashful that to stand in the pulpit was a terrifying experience. The greatest frustrations in those first years after 14 when I knew I would preach was the fear of what might happen when I stood in the pulpit. I had a, I had a uh, speech impediment. It was a rather strange thing. I, I would be talking and all of a sudden things would just ball up in my brain and I'd just... I'd just have to go, something like that. And I just, uh, it's terrible. It's horrible. I went to college and knew everybody in college was brighter than I was. Knew that they were looking at me all the time, talking about how ugly I was, how scrawny I was, and I was both. I was ugly and scrawny. And uh, it was miserable. It was miserable. And uh, I got a room off campus, and I went to class and went back to the room, stayed in the room for two years. Miserable, terribly, terribly miserable. And uh, I don't know exactly what began to bring me out of it, but I, I began to meet some folks and got some friends. Friends are so vital. Uh, do you know one of the basic needs that all of us have on both ends of the line is affirmation? Don't ever miss an opportunity to affirm somebody. And I, I miss so many opportunities. You don't know how much a word of encouragement will mean to somebody. And when you think about it, never, never fail to give it if you think about it. Everybody, listen to me. Everybody is having a tough time. Encourage everybody you can. Now, I know you think you're the only one who's having one, but everybody's having a tough time. 
And the most miserable tough time you can have is when you're not at peace with yourself. When you don't like yourself. And uh, I have yet, I think, to run into anybody honest who will not confess that they've had a terrible time coming to really like themselves. At least some struggle. Um, I met and fell in love with my wife in our senior, junior, my junior year in college. And, and we married uh, after I graduated and before I went to the seminary. My wife is a lovely, vivacious, thoughtful, sensitive, uh, and high-strung person. Uh, we've had 30 wonderful years together. She's taught me a great deal. She was exactly what I needed in every way. But as I brought some things into the marriage, she brought something that I didn't have too much of an understanding of. And that was rejection. Now, I brought a sense of inadequacy and a sense of inferiority and a super self-sensitivity. My father was a rather stern disciplinarian, or he was angry in discipline, and so he would begin to curse and storm at us. It didn't make any difference which one of us had done wrong. He'd get around to all of us before the episode was over. And so I developed... I developed uh, an inward complex. I'd, I'd just sort of, you know, crouch until it was all over and then I would feel bad about what he said to me. You're a worthless blankety-blank. And, and uh, I didn't remember believing that. But you see, words are curses. And so every time my daddy would tell me that, programmed into my computer was that mentality. And uh, so that I developed a, an, a, an attitude and a, a disposition like a turtle. Uh, my wife and I came later to see this. And uh, uh, when, when we saw that, we had an understanding about each other. I had a mentality of a turtle. When, storm, when the storm would start, I'd just pull my head in and let the storm take place. And then when it was all over, I'd stick my head out and see if everything is all right. Well, now, my wife... We, we, we determined very early in our marriage that she was a skunk. When in doubt, spew, you know. And uh, my, my wife has a... Has a uh, I am an introvert. My wife is an extrovert. And uh, 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 I, I kid my wife a whole lot. I say, you know, you, you walk in, shoot everybody dead, and then say, now, are there any questions? <laughs> and... Uh, that, that is, is her nature. I have a sort of a retreating, recalcitrant, hesitating, laid-back kind of personality. But my wife <coughs> was the product of a broken home. Her parents divorced, I've forgotten just when, somewhere before she was 12. Her father uh, ran a nightclub, had a liquor store. Her mother was a twin and her twin had died and she was treated as a child by her sisters and uh, in her in her mind she grew but in her 
personality she did not grow and became in later years a, uh, a sort of manic, depressive, schizophrenic personality and later developed all the, all the furnishings of that, hallucinations and, and uh, a disorientation and we had to commit her to uh, an institution uh, five times and uh, she was into occult she was into every kind of uh, weird uh, aberration she believed in uh, in uh, reincarnation she had a she had a spirit with her an indian guide she called it she was totally wrapped up in superstition if she uh, accidentally put something on wrong side out she'd wear it all day that way because it was bad to uh, change it she would throw a fit when a black cat crossed the road and uh, so my wife came from that kind of background <clears throat> she was both embarrassed by her parents and uh, felt rejected by her parents and uh, I'm going to I'm going to make a description of a typical rejection syndrome because in all probability there are some people here who are working on one I mean you're in the midst of one and unless God delivers you you are headed for terrible 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 trouble a part of the rejection syndrome is, is uh, based on a lack of proper self-worth or a lack of proper identity um, if we have believed that uh, we have been rejected in that with good cause, then we have begun to make the choice to reject ourselves. To reject ourselves. The basis on which we accept God's love and others' love and friendship is the love we have for ourselves. If we have no love and respect for ourselves, we have no basis on which to continue an ongoing respectable relationship with anybody. And I can tell you right now that probably 80%, if not more, of the divorces, broken homes, result from a lack of dealing with this problem. Uh, and uh, I, I could take a whole lot of time to talk to you about the differences that we bring into the marriage and how God uses those differences within the context of proper obedience to enrich us instead of to destroy us, as the devil would like to do. Uh, a rejection, and when I say syndrome, I'm talking about a, a typical, well, I'm talking about a set of reactions that are rather firm and, uh, and invariable in somebody. First of all, there is, uh, there is fear. Secondly, there is caution about intimacy with anybody. It's almost an attitude like this. I don't want you to get too well acquainted with me. Because if you get to know me as well as I know me, you won't like me either. See? In other words, if you ever get to know me as well as I know me, you will feel toward me like I feel about me. And then we'll have a disappointment and it'll all be over. So there is the caution of intimacy. On the other hand, there is accusation. When you see somebody who has it all together, you tend to want to hate them. 
I just can't stand so and so. She's so beautiful, or he's so handsome, or they seem to be so happy. There is a tendency to want to dislike them a great deal. Then, of course, with, with all of these, there is a tendency to avoid uh, a, a group situation. There is the tendency toward isolation. Then, I think, I think the thing that uh, helped us a great deal was the realization that a person who uh, was in rejection felt obliged, even if it was unconsciously, to act in such a manner as to cause others to act toward them so as to prove that they were really not worth anything. Now that, that's one of the most diabolical. It's, it's the hardest thing to explain. It has no reason to it. But a person in rejection will act in such a manner as to force you to reject them, if that's possible. So they, they seem to find almost comforting saying, See there, I told you I wasn't worth anything, and now you've acted like it. But they made you act like it. Now, let me say on the other side something that I, that I think is very, very uh, helpful. For somebody ever to break through in a strong stronghold of rejection, it's going to take somebody who, are, who is willing to love them at great cost. It's going to take somebody who's willing to love the hell out of them. And they're going to get hell all the way. I told my wife one time, and by the way, this thing grew in her, this uh, stronghold of rejection. And, and it worked on my stronghold of intimidation. And you see, both of them really had their root in this matter of self-acceptance. We couldn't accept each other because we'd never accepted ourselves. And of course, the, the terrible thing in our society is that from the time we are born, we are put on a performance-based acceptance, right? Well, look at Junior. He's been such a good boy today. He's just done this and done that, and we're good on the basis of doing good instead of inherently being something of worth. And so, if we've misbehaved, we're not good. If we have behaved, we get proud and haughty and arrogant because our whole society is based on performance-based acceptance. So, we go to school. And they say, well, if you do good, I give you an A. If you do bad, I'll give you an F. And there we are, performance-based again. And we meet that all through life. It, is, it fills us. That's the basis on which we do business. You do good to me, I say, you're good. You do bad to me, I say, you're bad. And so we're put on a treadmill of trying to perform in such a way as to win acceptance. Well, I must tell you that about 15, 14 years ago, 15 years ago, my, my father-in-law, who was the, one of the worst drunkards I've ever known, I saw him threaten his daughter, my wife, when she was about six months pregnant. Uh, and I thought, boy, that's an all-time low. And the reason he threatened her was because we were visiting. They lived in the same town where the seminary was. And uh, we were visiting one night, and he was going into the kitchen to get a drink about every two or three minutes. And one time she stood in the door 
she's as big as the door, and uh, pregnant with our first child. And uh, she said, Dad, please don't go in and get another drink. And he looked at her and said, you get, you get out of the way or I'll slap you down. Well, that's the, kind of, that's the kind of man he was. He's a wicked man when he was drunk. Ran a liquor store and ran a, a package store and a, a, a tavern. I've seen him drunk for months. Seen him having DTs, delirium trimmings. You've never seen anybody with DTs. You haven't seen anything. I mean, they're seeing animals. They're seeing snakes. They're seeing vultures. They're seeing things coming after them. They're seeing rats. And he was hopeless. Fifteen years ago, he woke up one morning and said, from a long, 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 long drunk, he said, God, if you'll help me, I'll never take another drink. And God helped him, and he hasn't had another drink. He's uh, a member of Travis Avenue Baptist Church in Fort Worth. He's the only person in the prayer ministry that has never missed a Friday morning from 9 to 10 in the prayer chapel praying. He's just a, a joy, just a joy, a miracle. Of course, Barbara, uh, Barbara's mother and he were divorced uh, years ago, 40 years ago or more. And uh, she went down, 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 down. Finally, we thought we were going to move to Fort Worth in 70, about 75. And so we moved her to a rest home in north, north of Fort Worth at Azel. And God began to do a healing work in her and totally healed her. She got rid of her Indian guide. She didn't believe in reincarnation. She just... I asked her one day, I said, we called her Granny Alice. I said, Granny Alice, how did you get rid? I knew she had demons by the dozen. I said, how did you get rid of the demons? I mean, anybody that deals with the occult as much as she, anybody that dealt in superstition as much as she, and a dozen other things, uh, reincarnation. I said, how did you get rid of them? She said, one morning I just said, Jesus, would you get rid of all this stuff, all this junk? And, And God just delivered, and she became a beautiful cooperating Christian. She just died uh, in April. My new book is in part dedicated to her. My father died in January. Barbara's uh, mother died in April. Now the interesting thing was that the healing of her father and mother did not have anything to do with her healing. Uh, She, uh, if anything, got worse and uh, would engage in, uh, in uh, a behavior over which she had no control, at times uh, semi-violent, if not uh, uh, very uh, hostile attitude. And, uh, of course, that set off again my uh, problem of self-worth, and it would just devastate me, just totally devastate me. I would just get totally defeated and totally whipped. And uh, we, we dealt uh, from every standpoint. It had its physical manifestations and uh, we, went, uh, we went into a nutritional program. We discovered that she was allergic to 60 foods. Uh, she was allergic only to four major things she could eat. She had hypoglycemia. She was borderline diabetic. She was uh, um, anemic. 
and it was terrible. So we, we dealt with it from the physical, we dealt with it from the emotional, we had her in uh, various counseling uh, situations, and uh, then we dealt with it from the demonic. I, I, we dealt with the demonic. There were times when uh, the demonic would manifest itself in violence and hostility uh, and anger, just excessive anger. And uh, now, I'm telling you this because I know what you're thinking. Oh my, She's, uh, she must have been a terrible person. No, every one of you has had demons minister to you. Every one of you. And uh, they're probably ministering to you now. So don't, uh, don't take the Hollywood version that only one out of 10,000 people happens to have demons. Demons are all over the place. There are demons by the tens of thousands ministering to people and they get they get to do their work on the basis of lies like uh, a lack of self-worth uh, unlove and fear and all of this about two and a half three years ago the thing reached an all-time high crisis and uh, there would be at times totally irrational behavior and, of course, we began to deal with it <clears throat> more in the area of the demonic. Actually, the devil begins with a lie, and if you listen to that lie, he builds on that lie until he builds a stronghold. And then, of course, what happens in a stronghold is that, uh, that a, a, what seems like another personality takes you over. And, uh, and uh, of course, the psychologist would tell you that that is... That is a, a section of your personality that is in bondage. Of course, I think it's simply the, the demonic that makes us act that way. I, that may be an oversimplification. But uh, all this time, we are, you know, I, I'm doing everything I can for, in, my own, in my own life uh, to deal with, uh, with uh, intimidation and... Uh, having long stretches of victory. So about three years ago, I submitted myself to a, a, a person who dealt in this area of strongholds and, and demon powers. And uh, we dealt with the most decisive area in my life, and that was intimidation. Uh, of course, knowing Christ and walking with Christ and Loving the Word and knowing new revelations had, had delivered me to a large degree from, from the dragging down effect of, of a poor self-image. But I had never dealt with the root. I'd never dealt with the root. And I remember as we dealt with that area, all sorts of things would come up in my mind. And uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a terribly hard area to deal with. And ultimately, something dawned on me as we, were, as we were working together, and that was this. The scripture in Ephesians that says, He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. You see, <clears throat> what had happened is uh, back here when I was a child, because of a lie programmed into me, I stopped growing at a point of my life. And so when I'd become an adult, 
and and that area in which I in which I stopped growing, I would revert to child. I, I would revert to that area of non-growth. And I remember those times when well. Uh, one, one of the problems was that when my wife, who is a confronter, would confront me about anything, I, I'd want to do the same thing I did when my father jumped on me when I was a little boy. I'd want to go hide and, and, uh, and be miserable in, my, uh, in uh, what my dad called worthlessness or, or let me think was worthlessness. And uh, it's a terribly painful thing. And what dawned on me that day was that God had chosen me. And that dawned on me, and I just began to weep. God chose me. God chose me. God must think I'm worth something. He chose me. And uh, God delivered me. From a spirit of intimidation. Now, let me tell you, when there is a deliverance of a stronghold or a demonic power, that is ever a point you'll have to guard. Because the devil would like, like, like nothing more than in a counterattack to install a larger version of self-rejection or lack of acceptance. And... Uh, in Barbara's life, as, as we, it was a combination of things. Uh, we, we came to feel that, that uh, I, I never will forget, though, the two or three summers ago, we were so carefully trying to find the right, the right things for her to eat, and, and uh, she would be out of sorts, and ultimately I'd just get, had all I'd take, and, and I'd just get mad. And so, uh, one night, I just, I just said, I don't have to take this. And I just stormed out and went to do my running. I got out on the track to run, and the Lord said to me, What did you just say to her? I said, well, I told her I didn't have to take that. <laughs> he said, uh, You were wrong. I said, What do you mean? He said, You do have to take that. You're her husband. You are to her what Jesus is to you. He has to put up with you. He is not going to walk out on you. You are to love her like he loves you and the church. Now you go back and tell her you were wrong. You do have to take that. And tell her that you're willing to take it if she wants to dish it out for the next 50 years. And I said, yes, sir. And I did. You see, what people in rejection are looking for is someone who can perpetuate their rejection by bad treatment. They, they, they don't realize that. They act like that. What they're really saying is, is they push you off. Love me. Please love me. Bow. Bow. Love me. You know, that's what they're saying. Love me. Well, what do you want me to do when you're kicking my shins or punching? Love me. Unconditional. That's what they're saying. And if you're not one to be redemptive, if you're not one to put up with a little suffering by making a project out of somebody to bring them uh, to receive love, you won't be redemptive. Never work. 
So there were, <clears throat> there were two or three things that ultimately delivered my wife. Uh, of course, my attitude toward her was the, was the start of that deliverance. Uh, her attitude toward her parents was the start of the deliverance. Mine was a continuation of it. But uh, when she began to discover who she was, as outlined in this book, she realized that she was hating somebody who no longer existed. The old Barbara. And that now she not only had the privilege of loving this new entity of Christ in Barbara, but she had the obligation to. It was a command. A command. And when she discovered, and and God... uh, in his spirit confirmed that that she was the righteousness of God in Christ she came to accept herself the beauty of that deliverance is that she's not only delivered she has become a deliverer Uh, and it's not uncommon for her to stand before a group of women and she many times has two or three hundred women uh, in, in a group and begins to talk about herself and, and what she's been through and what God has done. She was speaking to a group in Oklahoma City a few months ago and five minutes deep in her, in her message, women began to weep. And they began to weep first because there was somebody who was honest enough to share what they'd been through and secondly, there was hope. There was hope. And uh, she just talks to him about how to get free and how to stay free. And uh, she's a beautiful, liberated spirit. Uh, both of us have to watch. Uh, we, we still have conflicts. But we have learned to deal with those conflicts. Uh, for the benefit of you who, uh, who are going to get married one day... Um, The basis of deepening relationships is meaningful confrontation, meaningful conflict. I didn't realize this. And so for 25 years, I I just, uh, I never confronted my wife. And I realized that 25 years she had been begging for confrontation. And uh, uh, so one day I got enough. I I got loaded up. I, I, I just could do nothing but sit there and just weep. I just bawled. I was so I was mad. I was mad all over. And uh, she was taking me to the airport for me to go to a commitment in Florida. And uh, she had been on some, uh, on to something and had worn it out with words. And the more she talked about it, the matter I got. So finally she asked me, but I was just going to walk away and go to the plane. She said, is there something wrong? And in the middle of the second largest airport in the earth, (laughs) I chose to vent my spleen of 25 years of animosity. I snorted and cussed and stomped and cried and bawled. And I was sick over it. I was sick. She? You never saw anybody more pleased in your life. (laughs) 
it was as if, uh, well, I'm, I'll tell you what she said. I'll tell you what she said after I got through with her. She said, well, do you want me to leave? You know that line in the movie? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. And I left on that note. Now, that's five years ago. Twenty-five years of marriage. And uh, we then began to draw some, uh, some uh, guidelines on how to relate to each other. Be honest. I hadn't been honest. I didn't like confrontations. But I'm honest now. She's made me honest. The only person in the world could have made me honest. <laughs> we were moving our offices the other day just to show you how honest we are. Uh, and to show you how healed we are, really. Uh, I, I was moving some stuff in and I was stopping to do something, uh, a little project of mine. She said, uh, What are you doing? I said, don't jump on me. She said, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, don't jump on me. She said, well, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I said, don't jump on me. She said, well, all right. <laughs> now, before, I would have let her talk. And I'd have turned in like a turtle. But she needs confrontation. And I need to confront so in about five minutes, we talked about it. I said, thank you for taking it. Let me tell you how we had, how we had done years before. Uh, her, a woman's uh, uh, leaning is to talk a thing through. And often she doesn't have what she's talking about because she hadn't thought about it. She emotes. You understand? Now, a man is rather logical. Not that he's unemotional, but a woman is uh, more emotional, and and uh, and, uh, and so she she would talk, and I'd I'd get angry, and she'd talk a little more, and I'd get angry, and she'd talk a little more, and then we'd have a little explosion, and we'd both decide to be angry. But we decided <clears throat> a few years ago when we had a little marriage seminar of our own that we'd have some guidelines on our relationship, and that at any time in the midst of a discussion. Either of us could back away and say, I don't feel like we're getting anywhere in the discussion. Let's call it off until such a time as we can discuss it properly without penalizing the other. And so we've done that. And uh, we, have, we have fun. We have a blast. But uh, all of this is, uh, has to do with self-acceptance. And you'll never have a friend at the level God wants you to have until you learn self-acceptance. And you'll never have a marriage that's meaningful and full until you learn the art of self-acceptance. Because you'll never learn acceptance of anybody else unconditionally until you get yourself off of a performance-based acceptance. So, what's the summary? What is the basis upon which I accept myself? Shall I fix my nose, get a new hairdo, lose a few pounds, put on a few pounds, uh, go to the spa and work out in the weight room and run and perform until I am a specimen of discipline? No. You might think that if you uh, 
looked like Farrah Fawcett and thought like Einstein that you could be respectable to yourself. But that's not so. In your mind, looks and performance and success are all important, but not ultimately. You can never do enough. You can never perform well enough to win your own acceptance. You never can. And by the way, you can never work enough for God to win His. The fact is, you can never do anything to win God's acceptance. And you can never do anything to lose it. The basis of self-acceptance is God's acceptance. And God accepts you when you come to Him by faith and trust in the work of His Son done for you on the cross. And you are accepted with God. And you say, Is that all? Don't I need to do something? No. You mean, it's not important what I do? I didn't say that. It is important what you do. But you don't do any of it to win his acceptance. You do it because you have. If God be for us, who can be against us? Is God for you? I was just staring out the window at God's beautiful world this morning thinking about a covenant. I have a covenant with a God who made those trees. He and I have an agreement. He thinks I'm something. I'm not going to argue with him. He thinks I'm something so valuable that he emptied heaven of its brightest treasure and sent Jesus to die for me. I'm not going to argue with that kind of action. Especially if my believing it puts me in a, in a good stead with me. I'm valuable. I'm not valuable, valuable because I have a good education or because I'm a successful preacher. I'm valuable because God has placed a price tag on me. He loves me. And it took me years and years to get that through my thick head. Don't let it take that long for you. God loves you. He really does. Quit believing anything. Anything from the other side. He loves you unconditionally. Absolutely unconditionally. He thinks you're really something. And he's disappointed. If God can be disappointed, I'm not sure he can. Uh, the reason I don't think God's ever disappointed is he, uh, he's got more sense than to expect things. Uh, we, we get disappointed, and the basis of disappointment is expecting more than we should have expected. But if God is grieved over us, he's grieved when we don't agree with him about how valuable we are to him. Okay? Does this say anything to you? Um, so you see we're all in the same boat devil's after us in the same way and kids he's a liar he is a dirty filthy stinking liar isn't it sad that we've taken his line isn't it sad and and brother Bob has had some of these same problems rejection from a father you know what my wife's problem was she never had a father who loved her enough to discipline her who loved her enough to take time with her. And she had a good concept of Jesus 
and a fair concept of the Holy Spirit. But when she went to look at God as a father, that wouldn't compute. And only when her father changed and she changed did she begin to see God as her father. So it's very important what we do as parents, you see. Okay, you might have a question or a comment.